can just stay next to me. And as I maneuver towards the objective, I organized the group of people and continued to move toward the target. Got one of my other guys to use some handheld mortars to suppress the target as we, as our assault team moved forward. And we took the objective in a relatively standard infantry way, but leadership in that case was critical. There was a lot of disorganized people just as individuals trying to do certain things or not do anything. And my experience in combat. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part four of our mini-series with Tom Bigley, former Special Mission Unit Operator. Tom, at the end of part three, we were talking about some of your favorite equipment, and we were teasing people that we were going to talk about mastery and excellence. Maybe, maybe one of the first places to start there is with the skills of a sniper. You know, I remember one of the principles you told me about is that basically the the biggest job is to aim really good and then not disturb the weapon. Right. Am right. I am I getting that right? Yeah, I you know when I do a lot of well, I didn't come up with this. I was taught that. And one of the fellas that I used to shoot with and he'll rena- remain nameless was not a sniper, was a uh competition shooter, although he was also a guy that built guns for us at the unit. So and he had won the Pever- the President's 100 match several times, which winning it once is a great accomplishment, which one thing that I had never even competed in, although I don't know if I would have won it. But I was, a, I was at that caliber of shooter that I could have competed at that level. He was hands down the best shooter I've ever worked with. And what he told me when I first started working with me or working with him was just that said it's really simple if you aim a weapon at a target and pull the trigger without disturbing it it'll hit whatever you're aiming at within the capability of the distance and range and the ammunition so uh, that's what i used to teach people and i still teach that in my pistol classes if you can point this gun and align the sights and pull the trigger without moving it around it's going to hit whatever you're aiming at within reason of range so But having said that, there's a lot of things involved in being able to hold a weapon steady enough and be able to pull the trigger and and have a natural point of aim, which kind of means that when you point the gun and you close your eyes, when you open your eyes back up, what are you pointing at? So it takes out the muscle and all the other things that you're doing to force that weapon basically to stay on target. If you can relax and point naturally at something, that that's a big part of being accurate and consistently accurate. So well, that's can, point of aim is a big deal. Yeah. Well, can we talk about another element there, which, you know, I'm thinking like a lot of a lot of people have seen the, the Hollywood version of Black Hawk Down, the movie, right? When you think about all of the things involved in having the mental toughness to keep your wits about you in such an overwhelming situation. Any, any thoughts about developing those type of skills and habits? You know, I, I think, I think I'm a bad example of being able to necessarily teach people about how to be 
calm under fire or under pressure, whatever the pressure is. You know, it could be a, you know, you, you roll up on a car accident and people are injured and how do you react and do you panic and so forth. I think for, it's really difficult to teach people to do that. However, I think it is, it is people, it is something, it is an acquired, it's not an, an innate skill. It is acquired. Now, I think for myself, I acquired that over a long period of time, my ability to act in high stress situations. And granted, the, the special mission units do a great job at teaching people how to do that. And I think it's through repetition and training. Number one, that you train people in a, in a sense to operate in a, a planned format, but then you also operate in with unplanned circumstances in training. And if you do that routinely over and over and over in, in kind of a re repetitive sense that people get good at a plan and they can execute it, and then you start throwing variables at them and see how they execute. And then, of course, you do the other thing that a lot of people don't like to do, but you review performance. So after everything we did, we had what we called a hot watch and we would sit there and, and take all your personalities out of it and say, hey, Bob, you failed to do this or you did this really well. So it's not always about what you did wrong. It's, hey, that worked great. Let's replicate that. And that didn't work out well. So how do we fix it? And you come up with real solutions. And it's not just a, a it's not just a bunch of eyewash. You really have to get into the 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 techniques. Now, to back up a little bit, you have to practice individual skills and get really good at it. And that may be marksmanship skills with a pistol, with a rifle on a range day after day after day. And then when you're in a high stress environment and you have to shoot a bunch of targets and they're critical shots and hostage, and I'm talking about training in hostage targets and, and shoot, no shoot targets. And you have to do that rapidly. And then you're going to be assessed on it to a certain degree. And it's, and like we always say, selection is an ongoing process. So you have to be able to do this in a, in a consistent basis over time. Now, granted, if you, if you do make a mistake, let's look at it. Let's see what the, the fix is and oh, let's, let's fix it. But the, the problem a lot of people have, police departments are a good example of that. You know, they expect these guys to be able to make these types of shots in the real world out there on the road. And for the most part, a lot of police departments don't do extensive training after, you know, once they become a police officer, their training kind of goes away. And unless they're on a SWAT team or some other specialty group, they, they don't shoot that much. And for my experience, most, not all, but a lot of police officers aren't really that good at marksmanship under, under duress. You know, it is, it's an interesting to think, thing to think about this, you know, these meaningful repetitions. As you were talking, I, it made me think of this Michael Jordan interview where somebody's saying, you know, like, which, which opponents were you scared to go up against? Or when, you know, when did you really have fear about a big game? And he said that he never had fear because he had put in the work in the gym and he knew his skills. He said, like, you know, he said, I didn't know that I was going to win per se, but I didn't have fear because I'd paid the price up front. And, you know, I think about the fear people have about sales sometimes, the fear of rejection and these things, or the fear of being asked something and looking dumb because you don't have the answer or uh, the fear of public speaking, right? Like I think about when I get asked to, to speak to a large group, and I have that initial like butterflies gut check type of <laughs> thought about it, you know, like what if I look all these, all these things that maybe are common. And if I haven't prepared, you know, well enough, 
those don't really go away and I just wing it and afterwards rake myself over the coals about the mistakes I made, right? And yet, right. if I'll like get out my Apple Keynote, PowerPoint, <laughs> whatever presentation I'm using, right? And go give the presentation out loud to myself in the mirror in the bathroom 10 times, you know, and get to the point where I, you know, run through the slides just on my computer, sitting at my desk over and over to the point where I don't have to look at the screen. I know when I click the button, what slides coming up next. And I usually do presentations with many, many slides. You know, I like to mm -hmm. keep, keep it, keep it moving. Right. If I can get to the point where I can give, you know, 45 minute presentation without ever looking at the screen. Cause I know without having to, you know, I probably will just being a human, but without having to look at the screen because I know what's coming next. And I don't have so much fear about being able to answer a question and still come back to my presentation where I need to be. Or, you know, I think about sales situations, like sales can actually be like a fun sport. If I truly know my subject material and I know the competition and I know what's good and I know what's bad. And I'm confident that even if people know everything that's bad about my stuff, there's still enough goods that it's worthwhile looking at, you know? Absolutely. I think there's two examples I'll, I like to use that really have nothing to do with my, my, my lifelong work, I guess. I guess to put, put it that way. But two examples that I always remember and I like to use are two different, completely different fields. One is uh, Jack Nicholas. Obviously, Jack Nicholas, one of the greatest golfers in the world. And everybody's like, wow, he's so lucky. He's a great golfer, blah, blah, blah. Well, Jack was interviewed, and I'll paraphrase his comments were, yeah, he used to stay on the golf course. And, and just just one example of being able to, to chip out of a divot. So golf courses have divots in them. And, you know, you're playing golf and your ball ends up in a divot and you have to make some kind of chip shot to a green. He would practice that thousands of times just chipping out of a divot because it may occur once in a, in a game and it was critical that he was capable of doing that well. And he said, you know, he spent countless hours just chipping out of a divot. Never mind all the other things he was still trying to do, but it, it, none of it came innately. He just, it was just an endless amount of practice. So when he came to those circumstances like you, you know, if you were practicing slides or delivery or being able to speak publicly, that those things matter. You have to practice a lot, no matter who you are. And and some people, I think Robin Williams was just, you know, gifted guy that could deliver things. But even him, he had to practice things. Another uh, one of my other great examples was everybody thinks that and I don't know if you know who these or your audience knows but they can look up who Neil Peart is. He's a drummer and he just he's a uh, deceased. He just passed away a couple of months ago. But he was the arguably one of the world's greatest drummers, supposedly. And and I, I agree with that, but he was always asked What what band? For Rush. Okay. And and he and you can look him up. But he was always, you know, people would say, Oh, you're the greatest guy and he would look at everybody and say, You know, none of the things that I'm skilled at came easily. He goes, I was kind of uncoordinated as a kid, and I practiced and practiced and practiced endlessly to get to the level that I'm at. Nothing came easily. And all those things are what you see in these top operators and mission units that I don't think any of these people were gifted in the sense that they just came up with these skills. 
and that was whether they were skills as as an organizer, as a shooter, as a demolition guy, or whatever whatever spe- specifically they were good at. And in my experience, I remember being in a combat zone, and I was with a a basic infantry unit, and we were going out to do a a raid. And I hear I heard these people talking in the background, and they they were happy that I was going to be there, and they were talking about how they were confident because I was involved in this particular combat operation. And I walked over and stopped them. And I said, you know, I know you guys are happy that I'm going with you and that you think that things are going to work out. I said, but there's so many variables involved in what could happen out here. And you need to really rely on your own training. And just because I'm here doesn't mean that anything is going to go smoothly. And hopefully I can help you if the need happens. But the reality of this is you have to rely on your own skills. And I'm not bulletproof and, you know, anything could happen out there. So keep in mind that you have to you have to work really hard at this stuff to get that. Now, I do. I, I was grateful that they thought enough of me to think that. But the reality of all these things is I didn't get there in a day or two. It was a lifetime of work. And even now I'm learning things about how to maneuver corporately and structurally, although in my latest endeavor, it's nice to be able to have people want to be want to have me involved to hopefully be successful in what we're doing now. But it was never it was never natural. It's always been work. Yeah. Well, can you give us some more context? Can you tell us some like hairy war story where you were so grateful <laughs> for your training? Okay. Yeah, I was involved in a combat operation in Zafrania, Iraq. And I happened to be traveling with the commander of this uh, battalion, the battalion commander, and they were, we were engaged in a firefight in in a, a big roadway where our armored forces were engaged and had been hit by some IEDs, and the vehicles in front of us were being engaged, and everything was kind of at a stalemate. There was a lot of panic occurring with with our guys. So, so I, when you I, say I, the vehicles in front of you were being engaged, do you mean like some guys had? technicals and we're hitting you with big machine guns or shoot people are shooting you off rooftops with ak-47s what, what do you mean right they were shooting at the vehicles in front of us with machine guns and they had basically they had stopped the movement so that the engagement was causing the, the the gunners to basically give up they were they were in their vehicles and they weren't returning fire so the commander was was kind of at a kind of at a, a standstill he, he didn't know it seemed to me he didn't, he didn't know what to do. So what I did was I exited the vehicle. I moved up to the vehicle in front of us that was being engaged. And, and I motivated the machine gunner to return fire. And then I engaged some aircraft that we had available to come and suppress some of the fire that was coming from the building. So I just got everything organized on the ground and got everybody motivated to do what they were supposed to be doing. And the commander was interesting because he came up behind me after the fact and was following my lead. And that's okay. I, I, he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't as experienced as I was, for example. So we got everything under control. We got the enemy suppressed and we took the, how, yeah. How many, how many guys were shooting at you approximately? You know, several small arms groups were, were shooting at us and they were engaging the armored vehicles who were actually doing a good job without my help. They were 
they were maneuvering and engaging targets on their own. The the scout element in front of me was the problem, and we motivated them to continue the fight. So when you say motivated, do you open the door and yell at them to get up there on the turret? What do you um, mean? Yeah, I, I moved up to the vehicle and I asked the gunner what he was doing, and he he was a young guy and he was kind of nervous. And he said that they were being engaged. And I said, I know you're being engaged. You need to shoot back and go back up on the gun and I'll help you identify targets. So I identified some targets for him downrange and where the fire was coming from. And he started to do his job. And he did. He suppressed those targets and some other small arms targets out there in the field. And in a long story, everything got suppressed and we, we won the day kind of thing. So that's an example of something that I did in the field, but it's based on the fact that in a, in a real, and I wasn't yelling at him. It was a very calm interaction with him and his, the, the vehicle commander was uh, not helping. So I took the radio away from him and started talking to the aircraft and got everything organized. So at least they had a good example of how to act in a high, a high stress environment. Yeah. But that didn't happen by accident. I've done that. And that was one example of something that I've done. Yeah. Uh, what's another one? Well, when I jumped into Panama, I was the first jumper out of the aircraft one into Rio Hato. And when I got on the ground, it was kind of disorganized. We had people running all around. And one guy in particular was running towards me and not towards the target. And he was kind of in a panic. We'll call him Bob. So I, I got a hold of Bob and I asked him what he was doing. And he was in kind of a panic. So I asked him to calm down and just stay next to me. And as I maneuvered towards the objective, I organized the group of people and continued to move toward the target. Got one of my other guys to use some handheld mortars to suppress the target as we, as our assault team moved forward. And we took the objective in a relatively standard infantry way. But leadership in that case was critical. There was a lot of disorganized people just as individuals trying to do certain things or not do anything. And my experience in combat, sometimes people will freeze and they really need somebody to, to motivate them to either act in a certain way, shoot a certain target or move forward. And, and I organized that element and we took the first objective very efficiently with no casualties to our side. So, so I was happy with how that worked out. Yeah. In those situations, what's running through your head or what are you telling yourself? You know, there's a lot of folks that uh, might have a little trepidation walking forward up to the vehicle that's taking machine gun rounds. Right. Right. <laughs> what do you, what are you telling yourself in a situation like that? What are you doing to help keep your a game on or what's, what's running through your head where you're remaining calm and maybe other folks are a little paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Well, for some reason I can act relatively calmly in a lot of high stress situations and it, and I didn't just stroll up to the vehicle. You know, I was assessing the amount of fire that was the amount of accurate fire. Most of the fire wasn't super accurate. So I can tell that they're not necessarily accurately engaged in the vehicle, although rounds were kind of, uh, it's, it's, you can tell how close rounds are coming to you. So I, I maneuvered, you know, rapidly to that vehicle in that case. The Does that mean you ducked and ran really fast? What does that mean? Yeah, sometimes that may okay. be. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, I was looking for cover. Yeah, I was looking for. In, in other words, if I'm moving from cover to cover, I want to necessarily cross that open zone rapidly. I might wait till there's a lull in fire in certain certain circumstances. So less fire coming in 
or less accurate fire. But yeah, I maneuvered up to that vehicle and I, I tried to get the best position that I could to be able to see the, the, the field of fire in front of me and what the enemy's positions look like and, and then try to engage them as, as effectively as possible with what I had, not personally, but what, what weapon systems were available to me. So back to my, back to my previous question, what's running through your head? Is it, man, nobody's taking charge here. I guess I better. Or you know, like what's the self-talk going on? What's running through your head? Well, that is true. And in, in that circumstance, I was a little bit concerned that nobody was acting. So in the absence of leadership, sometimes you have to act. And yeah. in that, so when, when Tom's and, talking to himself, to what does that sound like? And, and, well, I'm not trying to fault anybody, but I can assess situations for whatever reason, based on my experience, maybe rapidly or more rapidly than other people. So I assessed the situation and I had to, and I knew that there was problems with, you know, we weren't returning fire. So that needed to be corrected immediately. So sometimes there's immediate action. And then there's other things that might take a little bit more time, like uh, deciding on what other assets I had available to me. Uh, yeah. In this case, I was thinking about, hey, we need to fix this now. My, my thought process is usually, what do I need to do right now? And what do I need to do later? And I just think about those things. I don't necessarily think about, oh, I could get shot here or I could get injured or something might blow up or whatever. I, I don't think about the, the negative things, although I do try to protect myself as best as I possibly can. I am not dwell on them or what? I don't. I don't dwell on negative things. I just try to do as much as I can to make things work. So, so same thing. In, same thing. I guess same question in Panama. When when Bob's a little freaked out, he's going the wrong direction, right? Is it? Right. Oh man, this guy needs some help. I'll just bring him under my wing until he can get his head on straight. Or what's what's going through your head? Well, I think depending on the circumstance. In that case, there was no sense in in freaking Bob out more by yelling at him, a, a calm voice sometimes in high stress situations pays off a lot more than, uh, than screaming and yelling at people in, in my experience. Although sometimes you do need to scream and yell at people to make them act. And yeah. How do you make that decision? What's, what's the, uh, the test in your mind of it's time to amp the volume up versus <laughs> time to pull the volume down? You know, I'm not sure in certain circumstances, it just happens and it may not be the right answer, but yeah. I, I have had to you know, physically move people. Yeah. In other words, if they're in a position that if I told them to do X and they didn't do it and they're not listening, sometimes you need to physically grab them and say, no, I want you here. And I want you pointing that way yeah. and physically move them into position. And then, you know, tell them in a, in a heightened sense of, Hey, do this now and not necessarily give them an option Yeah, and not be that nice. I'd say, you know, yeah. I'm not that nice sometimes because I can't be. And if somebody's in a position where they're going to do something that could hurt somebody or kill somebody, you know, you may need to act rapidly and forcefully. So I make those decisions at the time rapidly. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested more on this thought of you're assessing what do I need to do now and later. So the situation in Iraq, what I need to do now is I need to motivate that gunner to get up there and defend us and need to get take the radio off from that guy. What do you think it needs to happen later? Well, what I need to happen, what needs to happen in kind of a, a sequence is once a firefight ends, the fight's not over. A lot of people, and in that case, what happened in that case was as I moved through the, the combat zone, a bunch of people were taking a break like, hey, that's over. So I had to motivate them to 
take up defensive positions and ensure that, in other words, stop smoking and get in your little group and having a break and get in position, prepare for a counterattack, and I'll let you know when it's safe to evacuate the position. Yeah. So you definitely can't just relax in certain circumstances. Yeah. And just because they're not shooting at us right now, it doesn't necessarily mean everything's over with. So that happened. And yeah, I had to, and that's an absence of leadership in certain cases. You know, their own people should be telling them these things. And then to be able to exploit the target and exploit the people, we may need to question some of the combatives that were captured and so forth. So follow through is kind of, even in the shooting sense, when you shoot a target, you want to follow through, reacquire the target, and then relax in a in a short shooting scenario. But in a in a in a combat scenario, that's the critical part of not stopping. You know, don't don't give up the fight here just because you have a lull in the battle. Yeah. Well, maybe for for one last one here, when you think about specifically Black Hawk Down, how much worse things could have gotten? What's an example of you know, training of your colleagues that help things go as good as it could go? Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like to use Blackhawk down as okay. an example, but I don't question if I'm not there, for example, a lot of things happened in Blackhawk down where people acted and did certain things, some very heroically, although it cost them their lives, although they still did the right thing. The fact is some of these things may, you know, that may transpire in the big sense because you're still trying to do the right thing. And in those cases, it costs people their lives. However, I don't think that, I think that us, you know, American forces dying for the cause isn't necessarily our objective. You know, I, I like having the enemy die for his cause as a better objective, although I'm not faulting anything those people did. And I don't usually criticize what happened in a certain circumstance in a combat situation. If I wasn't there, I don't know what those people were thinking or what they had to deal with directly. And they did, in most cases, a lot of times they did the best they could. Yeah. So in hindsight, for something that I've done, it's always better to be prepared than not prepared. So if you can, if you have the option to have more ammunition or, or have something that you, you think you might need versus not having it. And the Hollywood version of what occurred in Black Hawk Down is different than the reality. But training is what'll get you through most, most things that will look, you know, insurmountable maybe in the, in the beginning, but being prepared is more than just being trained or being uh, aware of your equipment it's all those things in concert you know i think it's more to do with having a lot of experience and having a lot of experience in a lot of different areas that makes people successful yeah i don't think there's a substitute for that and what was it like right afterwards because what at that time for uh, what in reference to something that i go did, in right after Right after I that did. Summer. Yeah, I did. We were there a, a day or so after that event. So for me, it was just being prepared and looking at lessons learned, just like we did in training. Those guys were talking to us in the sense of a hot wash. Here's what happened. Here's what we think. Here's what occurs. Here's what you guys need to be prepared for and having the mental sense to prepare for those things. And whether it's you know, being engaged with RPGs or different types of uh, tactics that the enemy was using at that time. And we took those lessons to heart and then we, we continued to prepare, yep. whether it was, 
you know, so like for, at- for instance, that one with an RPG, what do you, what, what, like what kind of advice about preparing for folks who might engage you with an RPG? Well, have the best armors you can. <laughs> and, and well, and that's true. And in our sense, you know, they had a lack of armored vehicles, but the decision was made to use uh, Bradley's in some of our, our, our possible, we didn't do it in the, in that sense, but they brought Bradley's in and they brought more armor in and they brought AC 130s in. And those were responses to how to fix some of the challenges that they had dealt with in the initial problem. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's the right answer. If you, if you can improve your equipment and it is available, let's use it. Yeah. So that was one of the solutions. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, maybe let's just finish with, with one last story. Can, can you think of one that stands out to you? One last story. Let's see. So just some intense situation where you were grateful you dug your well before you're thirsty, you know, that you'd, you were, you were trained and prepared because well, I'll, give crazy. You, I'll give you a kind of an odd story. Okay. In a, and, and this was a, a comment that was made by a special forces guy. So I had a contract, a civilian contract to survey. I hopefully this isn't that boring. It's not a combat story, <laughs> but I think it's interesting. So I had a bunch of people working for me and I got a contract to survey a forest in uh, joint base Lewis McCord and be able to tell what kind of diversity of trees and so forth were available. I have expertise in that. I know a lot about uh, Northwest forests. So I won this contract to do that. So we had to survey 2,000 different points and kind of describe in like a 30-meter circle what was there. So I hired a bunch of people and trained them to do that. So we had to move every day probably 10 to 15 miles and record up to 50 different points. So I was training one of this special forces guy, a former special forces guy. And as I was doing these movements, and this was in the summertime, I wasn't drinking any water. Oh, yeah, yeah. We talked about this. That's right. So I was moving along with this guy, and I wasn't drinking any water. And I can move really rapidly through this terrain. And and we were stopping, and this guy was was in decent shape, but he was drinking a lot of water. And he kept looking at me. He's like, why aren't you drinking any water? I said, well, I'm practicing to see how far I can go without drinking any water. And he's looked, he was kind of puzzled. And later on, he was talking to his wife about it. He goes, Hey, this guy is nuts. He was moving like 10 miles and he would drink hardly anything and to see how far he could go. And my point to him was everything is training. And now, and and honestly, I can tell physiology for myself exactly in what environment and how far I can go without any water. And I think that's critical to know. And it's not that if I was in a, in a combat sense that I wouldn't drink any water and get to the point where I was dehydrated. But if I ran out of water, I know exactly how far I can go and what my physical capabilities are much more than the average person. And I think that's the difference between me and a lot of other people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so. I kind of love that statement. It is an interesting mindset to treat everything in, like, cause in a way there's, that could apply to so many things in life. I've like, Instead of sometimes I have the mindset of just getting through this, right? <laughs> Bringing to it the mindset of everything is training. It could, you know, I could turn it into more of a sport or more of a game instead of just hating it or whatever I'm going through, you know? Well, how about one more example? Okay. Okay. So recently, and you know this story. So recently I'm building this building here on my property and I was standing about six or seven feet off the ground and the ladder I was standing on, it was a big step ladder, got kind of wobbly and I decided that it was... I was going to jump off the ladder. Well, that was a bad decision because the ladder went sideways. I flipped upside down and 
I injured myself severely. I broke my right femur. I broke three ribs, two in my chest and one in my back, and separated my shoulder and was briefly unconscious. I, I'm not sure how long, but so I have this traumatic event. And I didn't realize I broke my leg at the time, but I was laying on the ground and I was about 30 feet from my phone and about 100 feet from my house all by myself. And I realized I couldn't move. I couldn't get up. I rolled over and I wasn't in a lot of pain, but I, I thought my hip was dislocated. So I had to make a decision. What was I going to do? So I I made a pretty rapid decision and I called, I called out to my wife as loud as I could. And my daughter luckily heard me and looked out the window and saw me laying on the ground and they responded. And then, of course, we called an ambulance and so forth. But I mean, that was the worst injury, physical injury I've ever gotten. And again, in the training sense, I didn't panic. And had they not heard me, I would have had to figure out either how to crawl over or drag myself over to my phone or to the house or make some other decision. And, you know, you do that as calmly and as collectively as you can, regardless of how bad the situation is. And I'm all better now. I'm like <laughs> Superman. You are Superman. Okay, this has been great. I really appreciate you doing these. I think my final question is this. I'm, I'm interested in your reaction here because, you know, you could be an opinionated guy, especially when you think people are making poor political choices or, or things like that. You know, you're, you're not. <laughs> no, no, really. You're not the most. You're not the most kind about other people's decisions that you you feel like are incorrect, right? And yet, I think about business stuff we've done together. I think about everything you helped us with at Child Rescue and helping run Child Rescue, and I find you so calm and you just don't get bothered by much. You're not overly opinionated. You kind of, no matter what happens, you're always like, okay, well, we can deal with that. I'm interested because you have parts of your life where you can go zero to 60, right? And I'm interested mm -hmm. in what you think it is that, you know, in my and your, you know, I don't know how long we've been hanging out together. It's got to be at least six, seven years, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just over and over, like potentially like significant problems you that part of you doesn't show up and you're just like okay well we'll figure that out any thoughts about any thoughts about that about yourself well i i do try to be calm but i will say and recently i can be the opposite <laughs> and i think well we, we it, all can sometimes not, but i'm talking about how often you're like well you're not I'm, overly I'm, opinionated you're willing to right. listen to others well i think that applies when it applies i think what I try to do, and and some people think that my reaction is spur of the moment. It never is. It's always, even if it sounds like I'm losing my mind, it's all it's all a prepared response. Mm. Even if it sounds like I'm screaming at somebody, it's based on what I think needs to happen at that time to elicit a reaction or to make them do something. So I think the value is to always think about what applies and why, and it's experience. It's based on experience. I, I used to interrogate a lot of people in the bad guys in Iraq, and I had a, an interpreter, a new guy come in, and I was freaking out and yelling at this guy and trying to get him to do something, and we had to take a break. And I walked outside, and I was kind of talking to this guy really calmly, and he had this strange look on his face like, are you okay? <laughs> and I had to then a laugh. I go, listen, man. All this is, I'm trying to elicit a response Theater. or or to see what this guy is, how he's reacting, so I can move on to the next phase. So 
that's really, unfortunately, it's just a play to make something work better. So sometimes a really calm response and just, hey, what do you think? And, and a lot of times I do want to know what everybody else is thinking because everybody has good ideas. But I'll close with this. There are stupid questions. And when somebody asks me one of them, I usually respond and let them know why it's a stupid question. So don't. Think, <laughs> Can I just you know, say I, that you're probably not going to get hired by like a local right. HR person to come in for a, no, a no. pep talk about but I used to have instructors instructors tell me or in classes and say, there are no stupid questions. <laughs> oh, there's all kinds of stupid questions. So no, anyway. Tom, there's no stupid <laughs> questions, only stupid people. Okay, come on. Okay, there you go. Um, hey, listen, this is really fun. Appreciate it all the time. Um, Thanks. And don't take any offense, Al. I was kidding. <laughs> I was kidding. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Um, well, thanks, right. thanks, everybody, for listening.